Well, welcome everybody to Downtown Harbor Church. Uh, again, like Adam said, I do want to apologize if you got stuck in that traffic jam. Apparently the parking lot is a nightmare. I would have lost my mind and went home. Anyway, if it's your first time here, welcome. My name is John. I'm the lead pastor. I was noticing Adam's shoes up here, and I said, they look so familiar. Where have I seen those shoes before? And it reminded me of the shoes that female rappers used to wear back in the early 90s. So that was a great look. Really a fantastic look for a man in 2018. Anyway, so we are in this series called The More You Know. And the idea of it, if if you're not familiar with what we're talking about, came from the idea that people come to us in ministry and they say, hey, John, you know, I've been a Christian for however many years or days or months or whatever the case may be. And they say, what am I supposed to believe about this particular issue or this particular idea or this aspect? Can you give me a little bit of clue of what I'm supposed to believe? Because reality is they go, I don't really know what I'm supposed to believe. Can you help me out? The reason it's so important to have this conversation is because at some point in your life, Someone is going to ask you about your faith. And it's not going to be about the faith in general, but they're going to say, what do you personally believe? And it always happens at like Thanksgiving when you're not ready for it. And they're going to say, hey, what about this thing in the Bible? Can you talk to me about this? And the truth is, are you going to be prepared to answer them? Are you going to be prepared to answer them about what you believe? Now, in week one, we talked about whether the Bible was reliable. Week two, we talked about creation and Adam and Eve, big topics in the Christian faith. Week three, we talked about Satan, and then we talked about the prophecies of Jesus. Now, the question we have to land on today is perhaps one of the most controversial aspects of our faith, Um, not necessarily within the church, but in society. The question we have to talk about today is, is Jesus the only way to God? Is it the only way to God? Because we believe it's a tenet of our faith, a foundation of everything that we believe as Christians. But society has an issue. Now, society has no problem saying that Jesus was a great teacher, he was a great prophet, an innovative leader, even a social warrior. All those things they have hate. No problem. Love all of that. But when we make the statement that Jesus is the one and only way for you to be made right with God, people lose their minds. They still lose their minds. Why? What is it about this? What is it about this particularly that they don't like? We'll talk about that a little later. But first what we have to do is we have to kind of set the scene and, and set the bar and give a foundation for what Jesus says about himself and what the New Testament authors say about Jesus. So the big meatball, the big verse that we're going to land on today that kind of says it all is John 14, 6. And this is Jesus himself speaking. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He says, no one, no one, no person, no people group, no one comes to the Father except through me. This is not John Grippa's opinion. This is the words of Jesus himself. So I would just challenge you right off the bat. If you're a Christian and you have a theology that says that people or groups can come to God outside of Jesus, I would just challenge you to make sure that lines up and squares with what Jesus is saying right here. Acts talks about this and says, There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Now, perhaps the most famous verse in all the scriptures, John 
3.16 says this. For God so loved the world. See, often we think God hates the world. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, the truth is this. I could go on all day reading you verse after verse after verse, talking about the fact that Jesus is who he says that he is, that he is the only way to God. But I'm just going to give you one more and we'll call it a day. First Timothy says this. There is one God. There is one man standing between God and men, and that man is Christ Jesus. Not my opinion. It's what the scriptures say. It's what Jesus says. So I would just just say this, just to think about this, all right? If there were other ways to God, then Jesus' death on the cross was a cruel joke. If there were other ways that a man or a woman could be made right with God outside of Jesus Christ, and the fact that God sent his son to this earth to be tortured, to die that horrendous death on that cross, if that didn't have to happen, that was the biggest joke perpetuated on that man. And the reality is that if that's not the case, you shouldn't believe in a God or want to serve a God that would do that to his son if he didn't have to. So when we say things like Jesus is the only way, outside of saying, yes, I believe, I think there are three counter-responses, three things that people would say when they hear that truth. There are people that doubt, there are people that disagree, and then those that say, I don't want to change. Now, this last group, generally speaking, this is a group of folks who do believe that Jesus is who he says that he is that do believe the scriptures are true and real. But for whatever reason, whatever's going on in their lives, whatever habits, whatever addictions, whatever lifestyles, whatever the case may be, they know that when they say yes to Jesus, he's going to want life change. And they don't want to do that. And so they ignore the truth. Today, I don't want to talk about that group. It's a waste of our time, to be quite honest with you. We've got to focus on those that have some doubt and those that don't agree. So let's talk about those that doubt that Jesus is the only way. They, they, by and large, they say, all right, I'm with you. I just got a couple of questions. I'm just working through a couple of things, and I'm just, just struggling a little bit. Let me just say this, and we've said this before. Doubts are a good thing. Pardon me. Not necessarily a good thing, but they're not a bad thing. They can lead you to stronger faith if you let them. So there is a guy by the name of Thomas. He's actually one of Jesus' disciples. And he goes by the famous name Doubting Thomas. He believed that Jesus was who he claimed to be, the Son of God. He believed in the Scriptures. But when Jesus died and rose from the grave, Thomas didn't get to see him. All the other disciples saw Jesus. Thomas didn't get to see him. And Thomas was talking to his buddies and saying, look, listen, until I see Jesus with my own eyes, until I put my hands in his wounds and touch his side, I'm not going to believe. So Jesus loved Thomas. Jesus went to Thomas and said, here I am. Touch my wounds. You doubt? Touch my wounds. And Thomas touched them. And he saw that Jesus was real. He saw that Jesus came back from the dead and Thomas believed. And Jesus said something very interesting to Thomas. He goes, you believe because you have seen me. But blessed are those who believe without seeing me. See, I think Jesus is talking to people like us. People who have not seen Jesus, but have said yes. See, I think what Jesus is saying here is that you are blessed 
because you have chosen to believe without having all the answers. Yes, you've got questions. Yes, you've got some doubts. And yes, you have not seen me. But in spite of all that, you've said yes. You've said yes to Jesus. So I would, one of the core beliefs that we have at this church is this. Bring your doubts. Bring your doubts to DHC. This is a safe place of learning. You don't need to be afraid that you don't understand it all. You don't need to be afraid that you don't get it and that you have some doubts or that your theology might be wrong. Bring it. That's okay. We're not going to judge you. Everybody's learning at their own pace. Bring it. We'll help you work through all that stuff. You do not need to be afraid of your doubts here in this church. But what about the people that say, I don't agree that Jesus is the only way? They hear John 14, 6, and they go, eh, wrong. That's wrong. I don't agree with that. I disagree with that. What's going on there? What are their motives? Now, I have a lot of friends that think this way. I've had a lot of conversations with them. I've answered a lot of their questions, and there's always more questions after that. But when you kind of dissect what they're asking, dissect what they're thinking, you really look at the subtexts of all their questions. I believe there's two things going on in their lives. It's pride and it's fear. Now, they would never admit this, but this is what I've witnessed. And perhaps maybe you've witnessed this as well. So what about pride? Let's talk about this for a second. I think when you listen to the questions that they ask and you really look at their mindset of how they're approaching Jesus in God, what you see is pride. Because they'll say something like this. If I were God, I wouldn't do it this way. I know better than God. I would never make it so that everybody's got to believe in Jesus. That's fine, but think of all the people in this world and all the different beliefs. That is not fair. It's just not fair that everybody has to believe in Jesus if they want to get to God. If I were God, I wouldn't do it that way. My quick response, I would be, well, I mean, talking about fairness, I actually think Christianity is the epitome of fairness. Why? Because everybody's welcome. Everybody gets in the same way, and the price is already paid. What is fairer than that? Everybody is welcome. Everybody gets in the same way by saying yes to Jesus, by no work of your own, by just saying yes, and the price is already paid. That sure seems pretty fair to me. I think the real issue that these folks are dealing with, and they wouldn't admit it, is it's fear. There's a fear in their voice. There's a fear in their thinking, in their questions that they pose to you. Because one of the first questions they'll say is they go, well, what if Christians are wrong and some other religion is right? I mean, how do we know that Muslims don't have it right? Or Hindus or Buddhists or, or, or Scientologists? How do we know that they aren't the ones that have it all figured out? When I hear that, I think, Valid concern, but that's a smokescreen. This is not the real question. This is not really what's troubling these individuals. The real question that I believe is plaguing these people is, what if Jesus is right? What if what he says is the truth, that he is the way and the truth and the life, and no one gets to the Father but through him? What if that is right? What are the realities that they have to face if Jesus is who he claims to be? 
You see, there's a tension there that they've got to work through. And the interesting thing is that tension never goes away even after you've said yes to Jesus because the fear that they're all wondering about is what happens to their unbelieving family. Inevitably, this question comes out. What happens to my parents that don't believe? What happens to my kids who don't believe? My siblings, they don't believe in Jesus. What happens to them? What happens to my grandparents who passed away, who were great people, but I don't know if they believed in Jesus? This is something we all struggle with. This is why we have church. This is why we preach the name of Jesus, because this is a real issue. And I just think after hearing all these comments and all these concerns, particularly this concern, I think that in some superstitious way, these individuals call into question the authority of Jesus to avoid the potential reality. I think they say to themselves, well, if I can cast enough doubt on this, if I stick my head in the dirt for long enough, if I avoid this topic altogether, maybe it'll just go away and I don't have to deal with it. This fear tells me this person actually has a seed of belief inside of them. The fact that they're wrestling with this question, that there's fear and concern in their voice, tells me that in some form or fashion, Jesus has already infected their heart in some way. So the big question is, what answer will take this particular people group over the line of faith? Someone who is struggling with the notion that Jesus Christ is the only way to God What answer can we give them today and in this series to bring them over the line of faith? There's no answer. There there is no answer that we can give for that final moment to bring them over to faith. Because there's always more questions. There's always another question behind the question. And I know this, very rarely will someone become a Christian after working through a list of questions. Very infrequently, is someone going to go, A, B, C, check, 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 got this, where do I sign up? There's always more questions. Rather, something personal will happen that shrinks their questions. Something personal is going to happen in their life that shrinks the doubts, that shrinks the questions, that shrinks the concerns. So what's a real-life example of this? Many people in this room are married. I myself am married. But I think when we were younger, a lot of us, maybe just guys, had a lot of reasons why we didn't want to get married. Now, I just wrote a list of reasons why you don't want to get married, okay? Number one, you don't want to give up your freedom. Understandable. It costs a lot of money to get married and be married. You've seen a lot of bad marriages. Maybe you're too young, you say, too young. Maybe you're afraid that when you say yes to that altar, on the way back, you're going to see a woman who's more attractive. What happens then? Valid concerns. I would just ask you rhetorically, those of you who've got your own kind of list of what this looked like and you're now married, how many of these did you work through before you said yes? How many of these did you buy a book on freedom and go, oh, now I've researched the topic of freedom, I'm ready to give it up and get married? The reality is you didn't work through any of these things. Something happened. Love. At some point in your life, you met the man. You met the woman and it became personal. And everything changed. That list that you had, oh, they're still there. But the concerns and the questions, they're they're just just a lot smaller. And you enter into this relationship, and they're still there, but 
for some reason, these concerns, these questions, they don't shipwreck your marriage. See, so much of this is true about Christianity because adults don't become Christians because they've explained away the unexplainable. Adults become Christians when they embrace the undeniable. Adults become Christians when they embrace the undeniable. Now, here's the truth about this series. Up until this point in this series, we have been answering questions and giving facts and lifting you up, giving you ideas to have conversations about people when they pose questions about your faith. But when it comes to this topic, when it comes to crossing the line of faith, to saying yes to Jesus, believing that he is who he says that he is, the reality is this, we're done answering questions. It's decision time. Because at some point in your life, you have to leave the huddle and step up to the line of scrimmage, whatever that means. Okay? Heard my dad say that once. Okay? I know what that means. It means you've done your research, you've asked your questions, it's time to get in the game. That's today. That's today. So we're going to be in the book of Mark today, and we're reading a very interesting story, a very unusual story. But you're going to meet a man who's a dad, who if anybody had a reason to doubt God, the goodness of God, and why God allows things to happen, it's this guy. So if you're a person who struggles with doubt, just pay attention to what happens to this man. So we're in Mark 9, and it's verses 17 to 29. And Jesus is now in a big crowd. There's Pharisees. His disciples are there. And this man stands up. So one man in the crowd spoke up and said this, Teacher, I brought my son so you could heal him. He is possessed by an evil spirit that won't let him talk. And whenever the spirit seizes him, it throws him violently to the ground. Then he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast out the evil spirit, but they couldn't do it. So let's talk about what's happening here. So in this story, two things are going on. Number one, there's going to be an interaction between Jesus and this father. But Jesus is also teaching his disciples. So the subtext throughout this entire conversation is the disciples are watching Jesus because Jesus is soon going to be leaving them. And he is educating his disciples how to do his work on this earth when he leaves. And for whatever the reason may be, they couldn't cast out this demon. So now they're trying to learn. So Jesus said to them, this is disciples, you faithless people, how long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. He's like, guys, I'm so frustrated. I mean, I've taught you. I've shown you. What, what else do I need to do? All right, I'll do it one more time. Bring the boy to me. So they brought the boy. But when the evil spirit saw Jesus, it threw the child into a violent convulsion, and he fell into the ground, writhing and foaming at the mouth. Now, Jesus, like a doctor, I like what he says here. He goes, how long has this been happening? Walk me through this. How long has this been going on? Now, if you're a parent in the room, if you have children, I want you to pay close attention to what the dad says next. The father replies, since he was a little boy. Years. The spirit often throws him into the fire or into water trying to kill him. This is not a parable. This is not a made-up story. This is a real father talking about the fact that since his son was a child, this spirit has been trying to kill him, trying to kill his kid. Wow. Let that sink in. See, I'm not a parent, but I know 
that this father has to be dealing with what I would call unmet expectations. Everybody, when they have a child, they've got some idea of what fatherhood or motherhood is going to look like. They think, well, I'm going to have a healthy kid. Beautiful baby boy, beautiful baby girl. We're going to have these wonderful childhood milestones. They first learn to crawl and they first learn to walk, and it's going to be fantastic. And we're going to take them to Disney World. I won't do that. Other people will do that, okay? Take them to Disney World. We're going to go to our sports games, t-ball and gymnastics, and it's going to be fantastic. And this real father, in some form or fashion, has all these dreams too. But what did he get? Demons and seizures and a child with a foaming mouth and a child who couldn't even speak. And I just have to imagine that this real father, dealing with these real circumstances, had to have said, why does evil exist? Why would God let this happen to a child, my child? I thought God was good. And I just have to imagine that after pulling the kid out of water or, or rescuing him from the fire, I've got to imagine him saying, maybe there isn't even a God. Because if I were God, I wouldn't let this happen. But in spite of all this, this man runs to Jesus. And he says, have mercy on us and help us if you can. That even though he lives in this shattered world of unmet expectations and, and unexplained questions, he goes to Jesus. Why? Why? Because he has seen something that is undeniable. In that man, Jesus, he saw something undeniable. He saw that Jesus heals and that lives were changed. This is something he witnessed. This is something he knew was undeniable. Have mercy on us and help us if you can. What do you mean if I can, Jesus said. Anything is possible if you believe. Anything is possible if you believe. And I just love the way this next line says it. He goes, the father instantly, instantly cried out, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. What an amazing phrase. I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. When I hear the Father say these words, and they're profound, I think what we learn from this is that deep down, everyone wants to believe. Everybody in this room, everybody watching at home, everybody who will see this video or listen on iTunes, anybody in this world, no matter what they may say, I believe, deep down, wants to believe in God. But, like the Father, we probably all have a long list of why would God? Why would God do this? Why would God allow this? Why is God letting this happen in this world? For some of us, I think we're like the boy. That every time we get nearer to Jesus, our doubts slam us to the ground. Every time we're just at the moment of faith, something comes and says, why would God do this? Boom! And they pull you back in. Every time you get closer to saying yes, some other doubt grabs you and pulls you down. And the reality is this. We become enslaved to our doubts. They're no longer just casual. They're running the show. And they're dictating what you do and how you live and your life on this earth and what might come. 
And it gets to a place where we've allowed these doubts to get so deeply ingrained in our lives that we say something like, until I understand everything, I can't believe in anything. Until I've figured it all out, until I've got every question answered the way that I want it answered, I can believe in nothing. When Jesus saw that the crowd of onlookers was growing, he rebuked the evil spirit. He said this, Listen, you spirit that makes this boy unable to hear and speak, I command you to come out of this child and never enter him again. It goes on. Then the spirit screamed and threw this boy into another violent convulsion and left him. A murmur ran through the crowd as people said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and helped him to his feet, and he stood up. It's amazing. Now, as I said in the beginning, Jesus is also trying to teach his disciples. He's trying to educate them how to do his work when he leaves. And so we get a little bit of behind the scenes here. Because they're home now. Afterwards, when Jesus was alone in the house with his disciples, they asked him, why couldn't we cast out that evil spirit? What, what, what did we do wrong in this particular instance? And this is not really for us. This is for Jesus talking to his guys. And he goes, this kind of spirit can only be cast out by prayer. I just think that's interesting. He goes, guys, listen, when I'm out of here, you need to understand, when you run up against this in the future, this particular kind of spirit can only be cast out by fear. You see, adults don't become Christians because they've explained away the unexplainable. It doesn't happen that way. Adults become Christians when they embrace the undeniable. This man had questions. This man, I'm sure, had doubts as he told us he did. But he saw something undeniable, and that was Jesus. So for us, in this room right here, if you're someone who doubts, if you're someone who says you disagree, the question we have to answer is, what is undeniable? What is undeniable? If people become Christians because they embrace the undeniable, what is the undeniable? Number one, the Bible is reliable. And there is no body of ancient literature that is better documented than the New Testament. Week one, this is all we focus on. It is undeniable that the Scripture and the Word of God is true and you can trust it. That is undeniable. If you missed that message, go back and listen. What else is undeniable? It's undeniable that Jesus rose from the dead and was seen by over 500 witnesses. That's undeniable. You can see the life change in the disciples alone. Before Jesus, they were cowards. After Jesus, when he rose from the grave, unstoppable. It's undeniable. Maybe you're somebody who says, well, this is all great, but that's all church stuff. You got anything secular for me to prove Jesus to me? Yeah, I do. And we haven't talked about this yet, but secular Roman historian and senator, a guy named Tacitus, documents Jesus's crucifixion in 116 AD. Not a believer in Jesus, not a Christian, but it's documented. We have the thing. You can read it. He talks about Jesus, talks about how he was crucified. Secular history proves Jesus's existence. Last week, 
We talked about the fact that Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies. Undeniable. All of this is undeniable. But like I said earlier on, for those that doubt, for those that disagree, I don't think you can convince them academically to say yes. Because at the, rent, at the end of the day, there's always going to be another question. There's no answer that I can give you today that's going to answer a question for you that's going to bring you over the line of faith. Because I think, like Thomas, you need to see to believe. I think this particular group needs to see to believe. That like Thomas, you need to make it personal. That like that list we have with marriages, you need to meet someone that's going to change it all for you. So how do I make it personal for you? I could say this. In this church, in this room today, in the room at 9 a.m., there are people that I have met that before they said yes to Jesus, and they would tell you this themselves, their lives could be described as drugs and sex and money and wild living and selfishness. And they had all kinds of questions and all kinds of doubts. And then they met someone, Jesus. And their life was changed. It was transformed. And we've seen that in this church because they will tell you this. After they said yes, oh, we saw baptisms. We saw abstinence. We saw tithing. And we saw Bible studies. And we saw serving. People giving back of their time to serve others. Folks, this is Jesus. These people's lives, their lives have been transformed by Jesus Christ, and they're still living a great life. But they would tell you that if they could make those changes by themselves, they would have done it years ago, but they couldn't. That was Jesus. Now, they'll tell you their lives have been changed. They'll tell you they've met a man named Jesus, and they saved them. But they will tell you this. They still have a ton of unexplained questions. A ton. We all do. They never go away. You are always going to be asking questions. I would say this. Your questions, your concerns, your doubts, they're all valid. I would never minimize your doubts or your concerns or your questions. It shows that you're thinking. But I would say this. Eventually, they just become a weight holding you down. They become a weight holding you down, preventing you from the life that Jesus has for you on this earth and the one to come. The author of Hebrews says it like this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. What is this weight that he's talking about? What is he wanting you to strip off? I think, I think it's the whatabouts and the why woulds. Well, what about this? Why would God do this? Why would he allow this? What? I understand the questions, but you need to understand that they are a weight holding you down. Strip them off. How do you do this? What do we do? 
He continues, we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. I think the most profound statement of the day is this. I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. I mean, I just feel like so many of us, this is what we're saying. I, I want to believe. I, I do believe, but uh, help me, Jesus, to overcome my unbelief. What's the practical? What do you do with a message like this? So I want to talk to one group particularly. Those that doubt and those that disagree. I could answer your questions, but I think you and I both know there's always going to be another question coming down the road after that. I really feel like, like the Father, you need a personal experience with Jesus Christ. You need to meet Him. That is the only thing that is going to change this for you. You've done your work. You've asked your questions. You now need a personal experience with this man that we call Jesus. I would challenge you to pray this week. And I'm going to give you a prayer, but I would just challenge you, if this doesn't work for you, come up with your own. But I would challenge you this week to pray. God, I want to know you more than I want to know the answers to my questions. God, I want to know you more than I want the answers to all of my questions. I think if you pray this prayer, you need to prepare yourself for God to do a massive work inside of you. If you open up the door for God to show himself to you, he'll show up in a powerful way. So if you are really looking to learn who Jesus is, this is the prayer. This is a prayer God cannot wait to answer. Let me pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, your Son Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. I thank you that you sent him to this earth to die for our sins, that should we say yes to him, we are made right with you. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity that we could come here today, that we can learn more about who you are. God, if people do have questions, I pray that you would open up avenues that they may get some answers. But I pray, Lord, that if there are folks in this room that have become so enslaved by their doubts, Lord, that they don't even know which way is up. I pray that you would break the bonds that they're in, that you would set them free, that they would know that Jesus is the truth, and that truth can set us free. Lord, I don't know what's going on in anyone's lives today. What's happening what's part of their story. Lord, but I pray that you would just touch us at our place of need, that we would feel you in a powerful way. And I pray that this week, perhaps someone will meet you for the first time and know that you are undeniably true. We ask all of this in Jesus' name.